Matthew chapter 5, from 38, verse 38 onwards. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you so much, Jillian, for the reading of God's word. So look, we've been talking about uh, some really hard things over the past few weeks. And I just want to let you know um, that if there is anything that's been resonating with you, or that's been like really just troubling your hearts about some of these things we've been talking about, lust, anger, divorce, please come and see myself or one of the elders, and we would love to pray with you. Um, So I just wanted to put that out there and let you guys know that we're here for you. And no one here is beyond struggles, right? We all have them, and we all need prayer especially as God's word is challenging us on a lot of these issues that are coming out in our text. Um, So with that said, let me pray. Father, your word says that I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness will I draw you. This is your word to your people. We thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. And we thank you how your love draws us. And we just pray that you would do that now. Through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the fifth teaching of Jesus. uh, On what it means for our righteousness to, to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, And so today we're going to be talking about what it means to live a life of love, but a love that goes beyond human expectation. How do we love those who have wronged us, who have treated us bad? To love as God is calling us, to love, it doesn't come natural to us. It doesn't. Jesus is going to say things to us in these verses 
today that are going to be really challenging for us. He's going to tell us to reject retaliation and hatred for one's enemies in order that we might imitate him in his unconditional love, in order that we might show the world that we belong to him, that we are his children. And so here are my three points for today. What we're going to see in our text today (coughs) is that God calls us to non-retaliation. He calls us to a love that is stronger than hate. And finally, he calls us to be perfect. Look with me at verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then he quotes this passage from Leviticus 19. He says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now look, this is not just mentioned three one time in the Old Testament. This is mentioned three times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Exodus 21. Exodus Leviticus 24, I'm sorry, not 19, but Leviticus 24, and then Deuteronomy chapter 19. Now, at first glance, this command may seem barbaric, right? It's barbaric to us modern folks who, like, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But think about it, right? To this day, if someone were to just come up to you, Larry, and just smack you in the face... What would be your natural reaction? Yeah, exactly. It's to smack back. It's to hit back. And look, he's not going to hit back just to one-up them. He's going to hit back out of a sense of revenge and retaliation. Right? So if someone slaps you and punch, if someone slaps you, then you punch them back. Because you want to inflict more harm on them than they inflicted on you. So, look, the reality is there is a little bit of John Wick in all of us, right? How many of you ever seen that movie, John Wick, right? Goes crazy on people who tried to hurry him. They killed his dog, so now everybody's got to die, right? So there's that little bit of John Wick in all of us, a desire for revenge and retaliation to those who try to hurt us or those who are closest to us. And that's because the bent of the human condition is towards justice, not in a court of law, but towards revenge and even violence. So look, you give me a black eye, I'll give you two. You burn down my house, I'll kill your family. You scratch my car, then I'll sue you for everything you got. That's the mentality, right? So the heart behind this command is to pump the brakes on violence before things spun out of control. And you did this by getting the courts involved. The lex talionis, or the law of retaliation, which is what Jesus is talking about in our text today, was a matter for the courts to deal with, not for individuals. And the courts would always make sure that the penalty must fit the the crime. So if you kill someone's ox, you didn't necessarily, um, uh, it didn't necessarily mean that now your ox had to die. It just meant that you had to replace that person's ox with one of your own ox, or at least give them money to replace their ox. It was only forbidden 
The lex talion was only forbidden in cases of premeditated murder that compensation for I-4, I-242 was, was encouraged. So in the case of murder, it was literally life for a life. If you take someone's life, then your life was taken. And so the lex talionis was extremely effective, get this, in preventing blood feuds and tribal warfare. The law of retaliation was to undermine personal vendettas that people had in order to prevent things from spiraling out of control. But what Jesus is about to say here is interesting. You see, in other examples that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, about whether it's murder or adultery or divorce, he's stating a command and then he's taking that command further. But in this case, he seems to be setting the whole thing aside. Yes, the lex talionis may be good for the courts of law, but it doesn't have a place within the kingdom of God. Verse 39 says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So you read that and you say, okay, well, (laughs) Jesus What are you talking about here? Do not resist an evil person. So Jesus, what you're saying is that I should let someone come into my house, hurt my family, and take everything that I own, and then I just sit back and catch up on the seasons of whatever, you know. Jesus is not saying that. What Jesus is saying here is do not retaliate against those who have maliciously opposed you. Look, if someone assaults you or your, or someone assaults your neighbor or your spouse or your child or someone who is weak and helpless, go to their defense, right? Jesus is not suggesting that we stand idly by while others are being injured. He's not forbidding us from opposing evil when it threatens our families or our society. When Jesus says, do not resist evil, even Jesus himself resisted evil. So he cannot mean, do not stand up against evil when it it comes to people who are getting hurt. What he is forbidding is the taking of revenge for purely personal reasons. When nothing is ultimately at stake except our pride, except our reputation, or our so-called rights. What Jesus is saying here is we ought to resist this I'll get even with you attitude. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we need to resist this mentality of you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's what Jesus is saying by resisting the evil person. Someone does evil to you, then you don't respond with that to that evil with evil. But you resist it. And this was revolutionary stuff Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is essentially saying that love is a relinquishing of our rights to retaliation. And if you were first century Jew living under Roman occupation and you were in the crowd listening to this then the question going through your mind is how is this even practical Jesus how do you love like this don't you know Jesus that we're living 
under Roman occupation. The Romans are brutal. These are an impressive people. And all they do is take from us. And you're saying, forego our rights to revenge and retaliation? How do you do this? And what Jesus is going to suggest next is even more radical. Because the solution Jesus is going to give is a reinterpretation, a reinterpretation of love that is both limitless and subversive. Jesus is going to say that in order to pull this off, then your love has to be stronger than hate. Love has to be stronger than hate. And he's going to show this or demonstrate this to them by giving them four examples of how to live this out. And now in order to understand these examples, we're going to have to unpack some of these things from a cultural point of view. So let's, let's look. Our second point, love stronger than hate. So the example Jesus gives, first he starts by giving, um, is the example of turning the other cheek. And we've all heard this, right? Look at look with me at verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now what Jesus is talking now what now what Jesus is talking about here is not someone who is coming up to you like Larry and just smacking you on the face and then you saying, "Okay, uh, well take this other one as well." I mean, he could mean that. But there was something else culturally going on here that we need to be aware of. Notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek. See, in Jesus' days, if you were smacked on the right cheek, that meant you were being insulted, not assaulted. And the smack was usually a backhanded smack, like my mom would smack me when I got in trouble. Just a backhanded smack, right? That's the kind of smack that they would give you with the back of the hand. And in rabbinic law, this law was, this was, this meant contempt. This meant utter disrespect. It meant you were scorned as inconsequential. You meant nothing. And it was usually reserved for those Jews that were considered heretics. So you remember, when Jesus was standing before the religious council in Matthew chapter 26, And they asked him, are you the son of man? And what did Jesus reply? He says, I am. Which was a clear reference to the messianic title that we read about in Daniel. Here Jesus was saying that he was the son of man. And what was their reaction? Their reaction was they tore their clothes. They spit on him. They punched him. And then they back smacked him. They smacked him. That is the kind of smack that they smacked Jesus with. This was the slap that Jesus experienced. It was what one German scholar, Jeremiah, called it was the heretic slap. So when Jesus spoke of being slapped on the right cheek, he was describing an insult that comes because of one's faith. And if you felt like you were being dishonored for being a heretic in this time. In Jewish tradition, you could seek satisfaction from the law of Telianus or the law of retaliation. But what Jesus is saying here is, don't do it. 
If you are dishonored as a heretic, don't go to the law. Rather, you should show yourselves to be truly my disciples by the way that you bear the hatred and the insults. Because that's what Jesus did. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not tweet back. He did not go to social media he did not rally a crowd of people to gather as his supporters to seek vengeance on those who insulted him. No, what did Jesus do? He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Again, what Jesus is saying here is that you don't have to prove your external righteousness by seeking justice in the court of law if you know that your heart is right before God. If you know that you're being insulted because of your faith. And then the second example Jesus is giving in is, is in verse 40, where Jesus talks about someone wanting to sue you for your shirt or your tunic. He says, well, then give him your coat as well. And the point of saying this is clarified when we understand that the coat of the Jews was virtually sacred to them. It was what kept them warm at night, and it was often used as well as, as, as bed covering or a pillow for them to lay their head on. So if your coat or tunic was taken as a financial pledge, that is someone says, here, I'll give you my coat or my tunic or my shirt until I pay off my debt, then according to the law, Exodus 22, then it had to be returned to you before nightfall, or else people would freeze to death. They would, be, they would get cold. They would be uncomfortable. So when people heard Jesus say this, they knew from this passage that no one could permanently take your coat away from you. It was your inalienable possession, whether you paid off your debts or not. So they would have realized that the point of this illustration that Jesus is giving is simply that on occasion, even when the law protects us, it may be Necessary to forego your rights. Even those things which we regard as our rights by law must be prepared to be abandoned. So look, if someone's saying, look, until I fulfill my pledge to you, I know the law says that I can keep this, but until I fulfill my pledge, take my shirt, take my coat, as well. And the third example Jesus gives is going to be that of going the extra mile for someone. Verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, then go with them too. Now in the first century, a Roman soldier had the right to demand that a non-Roman citizen could carry their baggage for up to a mile. Now to the Jews, this law was especially degrading. Let's say you're out on town with your, with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you're just having a good time, right? And then all of a sudden, as you're walking with your you know, significant other on your side, all of a sudden, 
a Roman soldier points you out in the crowd and says, Hey, you, I want you to carry my baggage for me. I'm tired. Then according to the law, you had to do that. And you had to do that for up to one mile. Right? This was insulting. This was degrading. And from a lot of men, this was demasculating. What do you mean I got to carry a... Don't you see me out with my wife? You know? Here she is thinking I'm her protector. Now all of a sudden I have to stop and carry your baggage for you. Now imagine this. But we see this happening with Simon of Cyrene, right? In Luke chapter 23, when he was just randomly picked out of the crowd and forced to carry Jesus's cross for him. The point Jesus wants to make here is this. We must be willing to go above and beyond the call of duty. Even when it entails an unjust imposition on your time, on your efforts, and on your resources. Your boss gives you more work, even though you're overwhelmed with work. The heart of the Christian should be, I'll do that work. And then when I'm done, is there anything else that you would like me to do? That is the heart behind what Jesus is saying about going the extra mile. Sam Storms, a pastor and theologian, said it this way. The first mile renders to Caesars the things that are Caesars, but the second mile, by meeting oppression with kindness, renders to God the things that are God's. That shows a heart that is being transformed by the grace and kindness and love of Christ. And then the final example Jesus gives is about money. Verse 42. He says, to give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Who is this Jesus talking about? This is the beggar on the street. This is the one who comes to you and wants to borrow money. This is the one who is struggling to make rent or to pay their heating bills. What Jesus is not saying here is that we have a responsibility to give arbitrarily to professional beggars. That's not what he's saying. And I don't think Jesus is also teaching that we should be subsidizing sin by giving money to people that we know are going to use it for bad things, for drugs and alcohol, to feed addictions. Jesus is not saying that because the Bible does teach that we should be good stewards over the resources that God has given us. What Jesus has in mind here are those cases of genuine need. Jesus is saying that we should be generous. We should have open hearts for those who, through no fault of their own, may find themselves in a needy situation. They may find themselves in need of a second chance. And giving them money might be the very thing that helps them get back on their feet. Helps them to live to see another day. Jesus is saying to those who are in genuine need, look, if you have, then give. Then give. Don't turn them away. Because this is what God does for us. We serve a generous God who allows his son 
to fall and son in his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. So in these verses, what do we see? That Jesus, in these verses, we see that love is subversive. In the sense that if we love in this way, look, it has the power to change people's hearts. It has the power to change the hearts of those who slap us on the cheek, who force us to go the extra mile, and who challenges us to be generous. In verses 43, 47, Jesus then goes on to talk about how love should be limitless. He will redefine their understanding of what love is by saying, love has to be stronger than the hate that you have in your heart. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, what's crazy is that when you read this passage in Leviticus 19, which is what Jesus is quoting here, the phrase, hate your enemy, is not found in the Old Testament. It was added, and the reason it was added was because the interpreters of the law believed that the context of Leviticus 19.18 confines the definition of neighbor to the Israelites. And so by deduction, anyone who was not an Israelite could be considered an enemy. So by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, their hatred for the foreigner, their hatred for the Samaritans and for the Romans, it was so institutionalized that the Jews thought that they were honoring God by despising and by hating anyone who was not like them. So if you talked about hating someone who was not, it was okay. You can sit around the dinner table and talk negatively about those people and no one would correct you for it because it was acceptable. And here comes Jesus who says, look, I know you were taught to hate the Samaritans. I know you were taught to hate the Romans. I know you were taught to hate those members of the Labor Party. I know that you were taught to hate those members of the Conservative Party. I know that you were taught to really dislike those environmentalist types, those kids who walk around with hoodies and baggy pants. I know you were told to hate straight white men. But now I'm telling you, to love them. Our Kent Hughes says in his commentary, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to love an enemy, now that takes the help of God. Because to love an enemy is not natural. I mean, how many of you are listening to this right now and you're just like, oh, (laughs) you're probably thinking of people that have hurt you. That's how Jesus' audience felt. Squirming in their chairs, squirming in their seats, ready for this sermon to end. Jesus, what are you talking about? 
Because what Jesus is talking about is that he's giving us a vision of human flourishing that goes against all of our natural sensibilities. It does. To pray for those who are presently hurting us, for those people who are, we feel like are ruining our country, Look, it goes beyond our human capabilities. It offends our natural sense of what is right and wrong, but this is what Jesus is calling us who are representatives of the kingdom of God to do. It's to love our enemies. We need to remove those boundaries. And not only that, but to pray for them. Verse 44, often the way that we can love our enemies essentially to pray for them because we can't sometimes get, get close enough to them to do anything else. Our enemies might be those people who have hurt us in the past. They may be a group of people who live on the other side of the tracks and they think and they look and they vote a certain way. The hostility and the animosity between you and your enemies may be so great that the only way that you can love them is by praying for them. God changed my heart through praying for one of my enemies. You talking about holding a grudge. But what it was doing to me on the inside, it was... It was affecting me. You know, it was affecting my relationships with people in the present. And then God put this word on my heart to pray for them. To pray for their best. To pray for their flourishing. And through prayer, God began to change my heart. Because it's not about me. It's about the glory of Christ. That's what it's about. We have to love our enemies, Jesus is saying, and in doing so, we demonstrate who we truly are. We demonstrate that we belong to him, that we are his children, whose lives have been changed by the radical love of Christ. And this is our motivation for loving our enemies. We should love our enemies because that's what God does to his. We must never forget that the Bible teaches that we were enemies of God. We weren't like pretty good people. And God says, well, I'm going to choose you because you're really emotionally royal adjusted. And I feel like you have some potential. You can probably do great things in my kingdom. No. When Jesus looked at us, he said, you are deserving of hell. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm going to transform you from a child of wrath into a child of God. This is what God has done for each of us. Romans 5, they said that God demonstrated his love for us while we were still his enemies. Christ died 
for us. Colossians 1.21, ones who were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now, I love that, but now because of God's love, you have been reconciled by Christ's death on the cross in order that he may present you holy, blameless, and free from accusation. The barriers we had before God is gone. The long criminal rap sheet that proved our guilt before a holy God has taken our place in the fire. This is how God loves us. He loves us enough to give us a clean slate in life and to free us from guilt, to free us from condemnation, and to free us from accusation. Jesus tells us in these verses that what will distinguish our love from that of the pagans, from that of the tax collector, is this radical, other-centered, sacrificial love of Christ that he has given freely to each one of us. This love, not the love that we were taught growing up, our tribal loves. This love, the love of Christ, is the love that's stronger than hate. And finally, Jesus ends with this call to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, look, Jesus is not teaching here perfectionism, as some Christians have historically believed that you know, we're on this journey to be perfect this side of eternity. No, Jesus said we're going to mess up. We're going to fall. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is calling us to is to be spiritually whole, to be spiritually complete. It's marrying our outward actions with the correct heart so that we look more like our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what Jesus has been addressing in this entire teaching series. It's correcting our heart before God so that how we treat others is both authentic, it's both subversive, and it's both prophetic in the sense that it points people to Jesus. In other words, we are to love as Christians with a complete understanding of what true love looks like. And it all goes back to the cross. See, Jesus didn't grudgingly go to the cross because he said, ah, I'm doing this because my father wants me to die for these unthankful and unruly people. That's not, that wasn't Jesus' attitude. Jesus' outward actions took him to the cross, but his inward actions, his heart, was what was causing him to say as he was hanging there, bloody and bruised, Father, forgive them. That came from the heart. Outward actions combined with the correct heart is what makes us complete. It's 
what makes us whole, is what makes us look like our Father in heaven. Our love must be stronger than hate. And it can only be stronger if we learn to love with the love that Christ has given us. So let me leave you with this challenge. Do you pray for your enemies? Do you wish them well? Do you pray that they would come to know the saving love of Christ? Before I bring Rob up for the confession, I want us to just meditate on this for a little bit. Father, I thank you that we are not entitled to anything. Everything that we have is because of your grace. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to marry the work that you are doing in our hearts with what you want us to produce in our actions. Because we want to be like Christ. We want to show the world that we are part of a different reality. We are part of the kingdom of God. And we are your children. Amen.